My guest on the podcast is Erin Miller. She's the proud granddaughter of Elaine Danforth Harmon, who was a WASP, a member of the Women Air Force Service Pilots during World War II. Now, her grandmother's last request was to be laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery, but after she died in April 2015, this request was denied by the U.S. Army, which runs the cemetery. Erin led a grassroots social media and direct lobbying campaign to fight the decision. Aaron, your story is perfect for a podcast, and it's perfect for a book, and what do you know? You've done both. So welcome to The Cultural Scavenger. Well, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be your guest. I left our listeners with a little cliffhanger in the intro. The Army denied your grandmother's request. Why? The government felt like there were not enough pilots to maintain the air superiority needed during World War II. So they managed to um, convince some civilian pilots, including my grandmother, to apply for this program. And more than 25,000 women applied. Um, And ultimately, there were 1,102 of these women, the Women Air Force Service pilots, nicknamed the WASP, that uh, participated in this program. And initially, they they were civilians, but the goal was promise or expectation was that they were going to become part of the Army. They were flying Army planes, doing Army training, just like all the men did. But because this bill or anything like it hadn't been passed through Congress, they weren't officially part of the Army when the program started. So they were like, basically, we'll just go start doing this, and eventually this law will get passed and you'll be officially part of the army and everything will get sorted out. And since World War II was happening, of course, people were very quick to act. You know, they weren't going to wait until a bill got passed. They were like, well, we need to help. The war's happening. We don't have time to wait around. So they went to, to Texas where my grandmother went to train and helped out with the war effort, expecting ultimately to become part of the army. But that this bill failed in 1944. The program was closed at the end of 1944. The women went home. 38 of them died in service. So they were not recognized. None of them were recognized as having been part of the army. They were not veterans. They didn't have any recognition. They went home and that's it. In the 1970s, they lobbied Congress to get a new law passed to recognize them retroactively as veterans because at that time period, the service academies were being integrated with women and they were starting to accept pilots into Air Force training and Navy flying training and My grandmother was like, we already did this like 35 years ago. Maybe we should tell some people about it. So they got together, lobbied Congress, took a few years, but eventually this law got passed. So at the time we had the Veterans Administration. So any laws regulated by the Veterans Administration pertain to these people. Now you have to fast forward to 2015 when my grandmother died. About a month before she died, the Department of the Army, which runs Arlington National Cemetery, put out a memo saying that the Women Air Force Service pilots were not eligible to be at Arlington on their own merit because the law from 1977 only pertained to the Department of Veterans Affairs. So the Department of Veterans Affairs runs uh, more than 130 national military cemeteries, but not Arlington. So she was allowed to be at any of these other cemeteries, but not Arlington. But we didn't know that because about a month before they did this memo, and my grandmother had been to multiple funerals at Arlington for her fellow wasp. Most of them were buried with their husbands who had also been in the service. 
So my grandmother was an interesting case because my grandfather was not in the service because he had a heart defect and he could not be in the military. So during the war, he was overseas in Asia as a civilian contractor working for a company to try to get airplanes repaired more quickly in Asia rather than bringing them back to the United States to get repaired. So that was how he served during the war, but he wasn't in the military. So he's buried in a civilian cemetery. And my grandmother really wanted to be buried at Arlington because she felt like it's a place where people visit when they come to Washington, D.C. to to learn about the people that have served our country. And she wanted to be a representative of the Women Air Force Service pilots there. And that's why she wanted to be there. Sure. So that's the long-winded answer of why they wouldn't (laughs) let us have her at Arlington. It kind of takes a lot. It's very nerdy and I'm a lawyer, so... In my book, I explain like the real detailed law language, but that's the story. It takes a little bit of explaining. <laughs> my initial thought was, well, you know, they're they're just women, so we don't need to. They didn't do the same work, but that wasn't the case at all. Correct. They did the same work that men did. So basically, the idea was, okay, we'll have this group of women come in and do the routine flying duties within the domestic United States so that we'll have more men who are eligible to go overseas and fly combat missions because they would not let my grandmother and these other women fly in combat. Right. So basically they were kind of like, in the sense, uh, Rosie the Riveters, right? Like these men went overseas, the factories are empty, they need people to replace them. That's what they did. Except that they they were doing a little bit more of a high profile job. Were they paid? I'm assuming they were paid. Uh, they were paid. They were paid less than the men. Um, which which has always been the case. <laughs> right. Um, I think I have a paper somewhere. I think my grandmother was paid $150 a month during training, if I remember correctly. Something like that. Uh, big, anyway. big money. The big money. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they had to pay for their own uniforms and stuff. So that was like oh, deducted wow. out of their paycheck. <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was the point is is to get more men overseas. So there were, like I said, um, 1,102 of these women. So in theory, there were 1,102 more male pilots that were eligible to go overseas and fly combat. You get the idea. So sure. they stayed in America and did things like um, when the Rosie the Riveters built the planes, they would um, go up to the factory and fly them to wherever they needed to go. They would fly planes back and forth across the country to break the engines in. They flew tow target missions. So men would be on the ground practicing shooting these tow targets that were dragged behind the planes, kind of like those banners at the beach that advertise beer. They would shoot at them. My grandmother trained men. That was her job. She trained men in a BT-13. That was her job, uh, instrument training. So they did all kinds of things like that. They were test pilots for new planes or planes that were refurbished or whatever. So they had all kinds of different jobs within the United States to be able to allow these men to go overseas and fly combat. Were you and your grandmother close? I guess you were. Were you not? Did she tell you stories? We were very close. She actually lived down the street from me when I was growing up. So we were physically close also. For most of my life, she was my only grandparent. She didn't tell too many stories. And she always was very humble and said things like, oh, you know, we just flew planes. Like very generic. And I'm like, grandma, these stories are not, you know, you must have done something more fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Did she fly a whole variety of different planes and which, which one was her favorite or did she say? So in training, this group of people, the WASP learned how to fly every single airplane that was available, that was made at that time period from training planes all the way to the B-29 bomber. 
Wow. Now, obviously, each person didn't learn every single plane. There were groups that learned, you know, different planes. But each of them, through training, would fly the basic airplanes. My grandmother's favorite plane is the Stearman. That was a trainer, wasn't really it? Really no airplanes. It's a training airplane. Yeah. Um, it has, it's a biplane, so it has yeah. the double wings, mm-hmm. open cockpit. So, you know, it's probably like people, it's the classic like old school looking airplane that people can probably recognize. And her job was to train men on the BT-13 in instrument training. So that basically involves the BT-13 is a two-person cockpit, but they sit one behind the other, not next to each other. So the pilot in training sits in the back, and they would cover the cockpit glass with this really thick canvas. And so the person in the back would have to practice flying, only being able to see their instruments And the purpose of this, obviously, is if you're in combat and there's a lot of smoke or it's dark or something you can't see outside the airplane, you can fly with your instruments and you learn to trust your instruments. So that was my grandma's job is to go up with these men and make sure they were learning their instrument training properly. Did she get to fly anything, uh, I don't want to say sexier, but like the (laughs) P-51 or the... she was also co-pilot on the B-17 bomber. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm talking uh, about. <laughs> yeah. But I think mostly just flying it, like moving it around ferry. Ferrying was another job they did. Moving planes, you know, when they needed more one base or they had to move them overseas or whatever. So they would fly them around the country. She was a co-pilot on that plane. But she told me once that she didn't really know if she could actually fly it if something happened. So she's glad that nothing ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> but she got to fly in it. But that, she got to fly it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, you know, what she did was, it was cool. Yeah, and they did not think of it really as cool at the time. I think it was more like a practical thing, at least for my grandma and a lot of the other women she flew with that I've spoken with. They they were more of the mindset, our country needs us. We have a pilot's license. This is something they need us to do. Let's do this. Some people have a skill to do whatever. This was their skill, you know, so it was a very practical mindset. And a completely different mindset that unfortunately we don't see today. You know, it's, it's your grandmother exemplified, okay, we're in a crisis. This is what we need to do. And today it, it's, well, we don't need to wear masks because we just, you know, it's, we don't care. We're not going to wear them. I mean, it's a, yeah, it, it's the same very deal. Yeah, it was very different and very, um, like a very urgent mindset at the time. There mm-hmm. was very much like everyone needs to do something. And you, you you had little kids running around collecting scraps. There were a metal or rubber or whatever. There were, you know, food rations. There, you know, all this stuff. It affected like every single person in the country. It was selfless, selfless behavior and selfless consciousness that, that, you know, you just don't see a lot of that today, unfortunately. So when your grandmother was denied the, the plot at Arlington, how did you get involved? I saw that it, it began with a simple Facebook post about your grandmother not being considered a veteran. Yeah. So basically what happened, she died in April 2015 and she wanted to donate her body to the Maryland Anatomy Board. So she donated her body and they didn't keep it that long. They said they might have had it a year and a half or two years. Like sometimes they keep them a really long time. Mm -hmm. Depends what they do, but they don't tell you. So we had no idea like how long she would be gone. So and you can't do anything until you have the cremated remains and the certificate. So, you know, we were kind of just you know, not really involved with that for about, her ashes came back about a month and a couple weeks later. So it was pretty quick. 
So I still have no idea what they did, but who knows? They, they did something. <laughs> <laughs> so um, around Memorial Day, my I remember my mom went and picked up her ashes at the crematorium place. And after that is when my mother called to apply at Arlington on the phone. And the person on the phone said, okay, you know, seems fine, whatever, and just took all the information and said it was fine. And, and then about a month and a half, maybe two months later, they contacted her again and said, actually, your, grand- your mother cannot be buried here. So even when we called, they didn't even realize they had changed this policy. So then they called back and it was around August. And so I was helping my mom because I was living with her at the time and I had finished law school recently. My mom asked me to help her look up a bunch of the rules and figure out, you know, if what they were saying was accurate. And so I, I went and spent, you know, several hours researching online reading the old laws and stuff. And I went and told my mom that what they were saying actually was accurate based on the law from 1977. Like I didn't like the law, but I mean, the way it was written, it really was written to apply only to benefits administered by the veterans affairs, Mm -hmm. you know, department. And I told my mom, like, if you want to change this, either Arlington can grant an exception or we have to get a law passed in Congress to force the army to recognize them as veterans. And my mom was like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. David versus Goliath. I know that one. So I I helped my mom put together a bunch of paperwork and we sent it to our senator at the time, who's retired now, um, Senator Mikulski. And we sent a bunch of stuff to her office. And Senator Mikulski had actually sent my mother a condolences letter after my grandma died because she had met my grandmother over the years, you know, at different events because they got the Congressional Gold Medal for their service and all this stuff. And she was always at events and whatever. So put this package together and and my mom sent it to Barbara's office. And then we kind of waited. And then in the in the meantime, we had also complained to the cemetery. Funnily enough, around the same time, we got a letter from the cemetery explaining like that, explaining why, not just like we can't bury her. It was like we had this memo. It says you can't, you know, they're not eligible, blah, blah, blah. And then maybe a couple days later, we got a letter from the senator saying we, we this is the response we got from Arlington, which I think if I remember correctly, it was the same letter that they had mailed to us and said basically, well, this is the response we got sorry, it's not really helpful. It was, her letter was like four sentences long and that was it. Up until that point, I was kind of felt like the whole thing was really ambiguous. Nobody could really explain what was going on. But when I got that letter, I got really upset because I was like, this is, she's not helping us. She's just saying like, here's the response. Sorry. And I was very irritated. And I, that's when I was trying to think about, okay, well we have to do something. And I was trying to think about what to do. And I decided, okay, we're going to just have this giant media push and do social media and I'm just going to make the army look really bad and then they'll change their mind. (laughs) So I started posting stuff on Facebook and that's when I posted about my grandmother. Here's her ashes. We can't bury her because the cemetery says she's not a veteran and all this stuff. And a bunch of people started responding and it, I I don't know if I say it went viral, but it got very popular. And I had all these responses from total strangers saying like, this is BS. I can't believe this. You know, around that same time period, my mom, came up to me with her iPad and she was like, um, what does it mean when something is viral or whatever? And I was like, why, why are you asking me this? And I remember, I I remember very distinctly, I was cooking eggs and I was in my pajamas. I was like, what is your, what are you talking about? She's like, well, you know, your petitions on like the homepage of change.org. And I was like, what? And so she showed me her iPad and I was like, holy crap. Like all of a sudden we had a bajillion signatures, like out of nowhere. It was so weird. And 
I was like, good job, mom. Like, thank you for noticing. Like, you know, I'm cooking eggs. I'm not paying attention to my campaign or whatever. Um, so that was really funny, but yeah, they had, and so we had a couple, two main guys that came, um, that were in DC that helped me can't, uh, lobby a little bit and came to some of the meetings with me and, uh, pushed some stuff in the media and, and helped me do some interviews and I wrote some op-eds and they helped get them placed. So yeah, they were very helpful. Yeah. They, they know what they're doing and they have all kinds of tools in the toolkit to, to help you from the time that you started the petition till the time you got this done. How long did that take? I wrote, I wrote the post, I believe on veterans day, which was the whole point, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's November 11th. And then I started really looking for media and doing social media and stuff like that. And I did the interview with Andrea close to Christmas, like a few days before Christmas, I think. And then once that went out, the Associated Press found me. And when that happened, it was like, forget it, it was everywhere. My sister was finding articles in Japan and Sweden. And mm-hmm. I used to live in Italy. I, I, you know, my Italian friends were sending me like Italian articles. They're like, isn't this you? And I was like, yes. And they're like, this is so weird. So, yeah, when the Associated Press found it, which was I did an interview with Associated Press maybe like a week, eight days or something later after Andrea's. It was it was like around New Year's Um, Andrea's story. So she really helped get like some people really interested in doing the story. And then when that happened, a bunch of people started contacting me, like you said in your book. You're like, how do these people find my phone number and whatever? Like, they just know where you are. It's so it's weird. Lexus, ne- <laughs> it's Lexus Nexus. That's the so way. I mean, and I was yeah. on social media, so I wasn't that hard to find. But it was just odd sometimes when they would like call my mom's house and stuff because she wasn't even really d- out there doing any of this. Um, but they find e- anybody and everybody that's connected with you. Yeah, so it was really fascinating. What got you to the finish line? Was it Martha McSally? Andrea McCarran's story was key. Uh, the Associated Press article was key. And then having Martha McSally in Congress was also key. So there's like three really big things when I think about the big story, because you need media, you need attention, but then you also actually need someone who can fix it, which was Martha. And she's a pilot too. So that helped. And she had a really special connection and that just made the story much, you know, more amazing. So it even made it more interesting because Martha, for people who don't know, Martha McSally was in the Air Force, yep. and she became a colonel eventually. She went to the Air Force Academy, and she didn't really know who the women Air Force Service pilots were until she was like in the Air Force Academy. And um, she had met some of them later on during her career at different events. And she was like, wow, these women are so inspiring. I can't believe I didn't know who they were when I was little. Like, this is crazy. And so when this bill issue came up, which she says, uh, she wrote the foreword for my book and she talks mm-hmm. about she was at her house for Christmas and that's when her staff was sending her these news stories and she was like, what? This is crazy. So yeah, so when they came back from the break uh, in early January, she introduced this bill to get the law from 1977 amended to recognize the women Air Force Service pilots as veterans for the purposes of being laid to rest at Arlington on their own merit. After they lifted the combat restriction in 1993 for women flying in combat, she eventually was flying an A-10 in combat in the Middle East. So, And that was 50 years after my grandmother served. And like I mentioned, they wouldn't let the WASP fly in combat. So um, that was a big deal. And so it was really, really a weird connection that she was happened to be in Congress to be able to do this bill when this happened with my grandma. Yeah, serendipity. I mean, your, your grandma was a badass in her day and... Martha flying an A-10, that's that's pretty badass there. 
Yeah, too. and she was only elected to Congress. She only got into Congress like a couple months before my grandma died. Like she had, she was brand new. So yeah. it was just, you know, very what, serendipitously. You know, what you were able to accomplish is something that is bipartisan. It was a bipartisan issue. I mean, nobody would say, oh, well, we're not going to do that. We're not, we're going to deny this woman just because it, the rules say, we can't well, do there, this. Well, there were actually a couple people, but I don't really talk about it in the book. <laughs> well, yeah, I there's always I mentioned there's that always there were somebody. people, but I don't say who they are because I don't feel like it's worthwhile. Like, I talk in my book about how I grew up in Silver Spring, which is adjacent to Washington, D.C. Like, you can stand with one foot in yeah. D.C. and one foot in Silver Spring. So, I mean, my house was like, you know, nine miles from the Capitol. I, like that we're in the market for DC media. So growing up, all I ever saw were news about the Capitol and Congress. And this was yep. my like growing up. So I was very used to being around all of this. And, um, it was just weird to like be immersed in this. And, and I, so I recognized, you know, this is a bipartisan thing. Like when the congressional gold medal was introduced in 2009, there were Democrats supporting it. There were Republicans supporting it. It was very bipartisan. You know, they, they wanted to support these women. And I, I recognized that this was a bill that with all the contention happening at the time, this was one kind of very, like I said, it was a page and a half. It was very specific. It did one thing. It didn't really cost any money and it could, you know, look good for lots of different people. So it was like one of those things that had a lot of positives. So I was very aware of that and happy that people were coming on board and saw that like everyone can benefit from this and like have a nice story about your helping people and stuff like that's, that. That's exactly right. When everything was said and done and you got the bill passed, when did you decide, ah, there's a book in here? So during this process, people kept saying, oh, my gosh, this would make such a great book. It's such a great story and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, OK. Like, I'm really busy and I'm time to think about writing a book or whatever. But then once the bill got to the Senate and it was just kind of sitting there and once it passed through the Senate, I was suddenly like, OK, now I only have my normal full time job to deal with instead of my full time job plus dealing with all of this. So I had all this free time and I was like, maybe I should just write a book because I have all of these, yep. you know, papers and resources and stuff. So I just sat down and started writing. So that summer between, so the bill passed and got signed into law in May, 2016. And my mom called the, it was a Friday. My mom called the following Monday, called the cemetery and was like, hi, I want to reapply at Arlington. And apparently the person who answered the phone was, was, had no idea what was going on and was like, well, I don't know. Da, da, da. But like, this colonel or somebody overheard them and was like, give me that phone right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Miss Harmon will totally help you. Yes, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry. And, um, so they put my grandmother back in line. Um, and we had the funeral in September, September 7th, 2016. So I had that whole summer to write, start writing the book, um, plan the funeral and, and all that stuff. And I did a couple more interviews with Andrea to kind of like talk about, you know, the funerals coming up and then she came to the funeral and I mean, my first draft was terrible. It was just like lots of blabbing, lots of like, and then this, and then this, and then there's people, and then this thing happened, and then, oh yeah, I forgot about this other thing. And it's just like lots of rambling. And <laughs> Yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> did, you, did you have an editor? Did, did you have a publisher? Yeah, so and yeah. that's another serendipitous yeah. thing. During this time in May, yeah, probably a week after the bill got signed, a week and a half, I was in Texas at the Women Air Force Service Pilots Museum. They have a big event every year in May. 
they celebrate the women Air Force service pilots. And in the past years, they would have the WASP come there who were still around and could travel. And, you know, this big event all day and stuff. But unfortunately, now they're maybe about 20 of them still alive and they can't travel anymore. So this Mm -hmm. past weekend, there were none of them there. So that was kind of sad. But the good thing is there were a lot of people there this weekend. So I happened to have just gone to that event back in May 2016 and deliver this good news of this bill getting passed. So yeah, and so when I was there, I was collecting all of these business cards. And it was the first time I had been to this event. My grandmother had been several times, but I had never gone with her. Mm And so during the summer when I was writing the book, I was going through all my paperwork and I had like a ginormous stack of business cards, which I'm sure you can relate to. And I was like, I need to organize this. So I'm like sitting through flipping all these business cards and I see one that says editor. And I'm like, oh, who's this? And so I'm looking at her and I'm like, I remember this person. She was dressed up like a wasp. Like she's one of those people that does reenactment stuff. And so I called her and I was like, hey, I'm writing a book. Do you have any interest in editing it? And she was like, oh, my God, I'd be honored to be editor of your book, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, this is just so weird. Not only did I find an editor, but she does reenactment of Wasp. But she knows more about the Wasp than I do. So it was really good because when I when she was editing the book, she'd be like, oh, this is, you know, probably more accurate to say this or say it this way, you know, because like I that's not my specialty to know all about them, even though I had to learn a lot about them to, mm-hmm. to work on this bill. You know, I know it from like my grandma's perspective and my family perspective, not necessarily like a third party historian type of perspective. So it was really serendipitous, like like you said, to find this person. So I wrote the book over the summer and then obviously I needed to have the funeral in it. So once the funeral happened, I added that into my draft and then I sent it to her and she, she read through it. And we had a really long conversation and then I spent several months editing it in the second draft kind of putting the chunks where they needed to go and getting rid of things that I didn't really need and that type of stuff. And then we, she read it again and then we went through it like line by line and really heavily edited it and and went through it. And that took quite a while. And yeah. And then it came out, I think around the time your book came out. Yeah. So so it's another weird coincidence. Yeah, it is. It's, which is why I I remember your story because it was like, we're on the same timeline, you know, of things and it's weird. Yeah. I don't know if you've had this experience too, but when I've gone around with the book, so in 2019, I was doing a book tour and I went Mm -hmm. to a bunch of places and air shows and things with my book, telling my story in schools. I talked to schools about Congress and how laws work. And, you know, I use my story as an example because it's very simple. It's it's, it's like very specific and it's easy to explain. Like the law says this and we wanted to say that, and this is what this law does. And it's very simple so it's easy to explain like it goes here it goes in this committee and then it goes here and it goes to the president like this is what happens it's not just some abstract constitutional thing um but people ask about my book like writing like for some reason i thought like when i was going around i would just get asked about congress or the wasp or something but people asked me about like what's your writing process and and i'm like uh like it was kind of throwing (laughs) me off off guard yeah well you you provided uh, a civics course for the kids but yeah. the writing process is a is something that people that was one of my questions. How did you find the writing process? So I like I mentioned I'm I'm a lawyer, so I write every day for my job. But and I you know I've always written and I read a lot growing up. I read books all the time and you know, I would write here and there just random things, but it was interesting trying to write this is more like creative writing or mm-hmm. narrative writing because for my work, it's very technical and like it has to be very specific and dry. Like this is the rule. This is what happened. This is why you're getting this or that. 
and you know obviously my editor kept saying you need more emotion and you need more you know blah blah and I'm like not super you know I'm not super emotionally emotive person so to me I'm just like this is a problem this is how it's get fixed this is what we needed to do and she's like I understand that's how you are but like people when they read it they want to like connect with you and stuff so and that's why you trying, have you know that's why you have an editor that she yeah so she was trying to help could, me like find yes. those moments when you sure. can be more like emotional and try to bring that out you know they uh they they add the sizzle to the steak yeah because there are definitely moments when i think about that were very emotional but i i i don't know when you're in the moment like you know when you're in the moment you're talking all these people and you're talking about rules and stuff it's like you don't necessarily want to express all of this because you're you're trying to be serious and get things done and you don't necessarily have time to sit and think about it when it's happening and and you don't think about it until later but like the first time I was in Martha's office, you know, I was meeting her and we were talking to her. It was very emotional, even though at the time I may not have seemed like that. And, and meeting Andrea and having someone like the first time that you have a reporter be genuinely interested in your story and help you and get it done. She stayed in the whole story until the funeral and came to the funeral nine months later and was doing kind of little things, little hits in between that, like keeping up with what was going on. So it was like very meaningful to have you know, but at the time you don't necessarily think about it, but then later you're on like, like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe all these people were helping me. Like, but you don't realize it at the time, you know, it's like, but then, but then you have time to reflect and put it in there. But yeah, well, when you start reflecting later, you're like, Oh, that was so nice. And I really yeah. was very moved by that. But I just like was so overwhelmed with all this other stuff going on. You don't have time to kind of enjoy it. Even during this whole time, I, I do remember seeing you. And like I said, I, I know what was going on and that's part of another reason why I wanted to write the book too, is not just tell my side of the story and make sure people know like exactly what happened, but memoirs and particularly like this and stories about Congress are usually quite sad and tragic. You yeah. know, memoirs are always about like someone's disease or like someone yeah. dying or like they're very tragic. You know, it's unusual. You have a memoir that's like about like my grandma died but with she a happy 90, ending. She was she was 95 years old right. and she had cancer and it wasn't like a surprise, you know. The sad thing was that she wasn't recognized for her lifetime contributions to to the country and that's what was really sad, but you know that's not like the same as losing someone in a tragedy or a death or illness or something like that, you know, that's unexpected. Like memoirs a lot of times don't really have happy endings. If they do, it's kind of like, well, I went through all this tragedy. And so this is what I've learned from it. And this is more like, look at all these people helping me. Can you believe this? Yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Um, do you fly? <laughs> Has any of that rubbed off on you? I, I don't. Um, and people ask me that very often, especially when I'm at air shows and things. They just assume that I do. And yeah. I'm like, I don't. Okay, and, Aaron, and get up and then fly that plane yeah. over there. <laughs> I'm interested and I actually went and got my certificate um, that you have to get from the FAA, you know, to do your eventually if you qualify and have all that registered with the FAA. But like, I don't know, it's something I'm interested in, but maybe not enough to actually go do it. So it's kind of one of those things hanging around in the background. Like, is this what I want to spend my free time and money doing? Uh, you know, and I have all these other things that interest me, which sounds weird because when you say that to people who fly, they just can't comprehend. They're like, what? You don't want to like, how is this possible? Like, I don't understand. And my your, friends have been really nice. Genes. I have a lot of friends who fly planes and, 
you know, I, I a really good friend of mine who actually was a Thunderbird pilot gave me a, like a logbook, you know, for when mm. I start flying. So like, it's all there. It just hasn't happened. So that'll be the next story. There you go. You've got you've got a sequel. And yeah, <laughs> you, your story is terrific. It's how grassroots activism can be successful. We'll look for the sequel to Final Flight, Final Fight that is sold wherever books are sold and on Amazon. Aaron Miller. Thank you for having me. I, I was really very honored um, to connect with you. And I, I do think you're doing something very important. That's what keeps you going. Thank you so much. Well, that's the story. A special acknowledgement to Mary Ann Kennedy Pat Bunch and Pam Rose for allowing me to use their music from Safe in the Arms of Love, a song Allison loved. If you liked what you heard, please share my podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, why not subscribe? And I'd sure appreciate a great rating in Apple Podcasts, too. I'm Andy Parker, and I'll be here next week with another episode of The Cultural Scavenger. Thanks for listening.